everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our messages dating back to late 2020. Today's message was given by Pastor DJ Ritchie on March 20th, 2022, during our Sunday evening service. We want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Every second counts. In sports, when it comes to world records, every half second counts. Every split second counts. God is a God of incredible precision. And God has revealed to us some incredibly precise prophecies. We have spent a lot of time over the last number of months, really going back to last summer when we began to study prophecy in general. We've seen a number of amazing prophecies that have the very fingerprint of God on them. Because only God could arrange the nations, the peoples to fulfill the promises that He has so often made to us in the Scriptures. We've seen a number of those here in the book of Daniel. And now we're going to come to one of the most significant, most important prophecies in all the Bible. A prophecy fulfilled with such amazing precision that only the fingerprint of God can explain it. People have tried to rationalize it away. Oh, that was written after the fact. Well, this prophecy causes a problem for those people. Because to say that Daniel chapter 9 was written after the fact not only denies history, but it denies the very rejection of the Jews who refused this prophecy. How is it that the Jews, after the fulfillment of this prophecy, created the prophecy, stuck it in their Bible, and then told people, don't read it. Don't read Daniel chapter 9. This is the forbidden chapter of the Bible for many, tragically, for many Jewish people. Don't read Daniel chapter 9. Those Christians will try to use it to confuse you and to mislead you. So, do you really think that they thought this up after the fact. Of course, all of the historical evidence shows that that is a, a, a pipe dream of the atheist. There's no evidence to that. There is only overwhelming evidence against that. But this prophecy gives us the very day that the Messiah would come into the city of Jerusalem and proclaim himself the king. Proclaim himself the Messiah. And when you understand this prophecy and you understand the rejection of the Jewish people, God told them not only how Messiah would be born all the way back in the Garden of Eden. He would be the seed of the woman. There's only one person who's been born who has not been born the seed of the man. Only Messiah has been the seed of the woman virgin born and to make sure we got that prophecy isaiah repeated it behold the virgin will conceive he's not only pointing back to genesis he's pointing ahead to mary who would give birth the virgin birth of messiah that leads us not only to how he would be born but where he would be born He would be born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, born in the city of David, of the house and lineage of David. God is narrowing, 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 narrowing. And now he in Daniel chapter 9 gives us the exact date, as we'll see tonight, as to when he would come into Jerusalem. And it tells us 
that when he comes into Jerusalem, he will not be accepted as king, but he will be cut off. He will die, but not because of his own sin, but for the sins of the people. When you understand the precision of this prophecy, you understand the judgment that fell on the nation of Israel. And that continues to this day, as Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The partial hardening and the blinding of the majority of the nation of Israel because they have refused to see what God has so plainly laid out for them. Nevertheless, most of the nation, almost 2,000 years ago now, rejected, denied, not only their own eyes, but more importantly, God's Word. And so we see a nation under judgment. But we will also see in this prophecy that there is hope as well. Let's look together at Daniel chapter 9 verses 20 through 27 now last week we looked at daniel chapter 9 uh, the beginning of the chapter when daniel is studying the book of jeremiah and he sees that the timeline again a very precise prophecy a timed prophecy where god had said through jeremiah that israel was going to be in the captivity for 70 years and Daniel is doing the math and he's looking at the calendar and he realizes that the 70 years is almost up. And rather than kick back and relax and say, well, God's got it all planned out anyway, so I don't have to do anything. Daniel gets on his face and he repents and he intercedes for the people, his people. And he begins to entreat God to heal his land and to heal his nation and to heal his people and to reestablish them. And then we see in chapter 9, verse 20, these words. And while I was speaking, while I was speaking and praying, speaking to God, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. By the way, you don't have to pray out loud to pray. God hears your heart. God sees your heart. But I encourage you to pray out loud. I found that when I'm by myself and I pray out loud, number one, it helps me stay focused while I'm praying a lot better than when, because my, my mind monitor, my mind is a sieve. I have a, dear, I have a dear friend, my wife would tell you that, but I have a dear friend in Kentucky who uh, was our church secretary, and she'd tell me that all the time. She'd say, your mind is a sieve. Yeah, well, guilty, guilty. So when I pray out loud, it, it really helps me to focus, and I try to do that whenever I'm by myself. I, I don't. Uh, pray out loud a lot when I'm not by myself uh, unless I'm praying with with other people but because uh, I I can you know get very personal in my prayers so uh, and I'd like to keep that stuff between me and God but Daniel apparently is speaking out loud and he's praying here and confessing his sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation or the evening sacrifice. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel... I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding at the beginning of thy supplications. The commandment came forth and I am come to show thee for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Now, let's stop there just for a moment. Number one, the prophecy is given and interpreted by the angel Gabriel. Now, he is called a man, but notice he is also an angel. That'll be significant as we go through this book a little farther by the way at some point I, i'm hoping as the lord leads we'll have uh the opportunity to do an in-depth study together on angels because a lot of what we think we know about angels comes more from hollywood than the holy word we have a lot of misconceptions about angels i saw something on instagram a, a few weeks ago and uh, it was one of those 
video, so I, I couldn't just get a, all the snapshots. I, I could probably, you know, stop it and take a screenshot and stop it. I haven't gone that far yet. But it was uh, this guy who was sitting down to read uh, what the Bi- how the Bible describes angels, and then it was popping up pictures, you know, Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, and all these, you know, Revelation, and all these different, and it was showing these pictures, and the guy's eyes were getting bigger and bigger and bigger as he's seeing these images of, of how God describes angels. But anyways, Gabriel comes in the form of a man, certainly. He is a, is a male, but he is also an angel, and he is the one who is bringing the prophecy. He's also the one that's interpreting the prophecy, and this is, should be very interesting to us if we've been reading through chapters 1 through 8 because throughout the book of Daniel, God has been speaking in, in dreams and visions. And God spoke through Nebuchadnezzar's dream to the pagan king God gave a dream that dismayed him so much. It, it, it harkens back to the dreams that God gave Pharaoh. And so God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream And Daniel is the one that the Holy Spirit inspires to interpret that dream. But then Daniel begins to receive dreams and visions, prophetic dreams and visions as well. But for this prophecy, we're not going to use imagery. We're not going to get confused. God is not leaving anything to open to our interpretation as we do with dreams and visions. And we talked about why God uses dreams and visions uh, when we started to look at those dreams and visions. And sometimes God uses dreams and visions because things have multiple meanings. And sometimes God uses dreams and visions because he's trying to create in the prophet and for us in the text a, a visceral reaction to what is going to happen. He's trying to draw us into the prophecy so that we can, with our, with our mind and our imagination, try to see what Daniel was seeing so that we can encounter these prophecies, uh, prophecies experientially. But now, this, is, this prophecy needs to be crystal clear. This needs to be precise. Heaven and hell is going to ride on this prophecy. People's eternal destinies. You can get a lot of prophecy wrong and still be a Christian. You can't get the gospel wrong and still be a Christian. You can't get the gospel wrong. You can't, uh, uh, we talked about it just before uh, the service. You have to know why you're saved. You have to know who, who, what you're saved from. And so this prophecy is given in great precision and specificity, unlike the earlier prophecies. Gabriel is going to make sure face-to-face that God is, is getting this message to Daniel. And it's interesting that Gabriel is given the ability to open Daniel's understanding. You notice that? Gabriel the angel is given the ability to help unlock the brain power for the understanding, the spiritual discernment that Daniel has. By the way, if God's angels have the power to increase our understanding, do you think maybe Satan's angels have the power to confuse our understanding? Isn't that exactly what 2 Corinthians 4 says? That the God of this world, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of the light of the gospel of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual war that we're involved in. That doesn't mean that we pray to angels for understanding because that's not what Daniel does. And by the way, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So you have someone a lot greater, infinitely greater than Gabriel with all due respect to that great angel living inside of you to give you understanding and insight. This prophecy is given without any kind of symbolic trappings or dream verbiage. This is given with mathematical precision. Number two, this is so important to understanding this interpretation. The prophecy is given in response to Daniel's prayer. And what was Daniel praying about? Who was he praying for? For Israel. For the nation of Israel. For his own people who were living in sin, who were under judgment, he is praying for his rebellious people. And the answer concerns 
those people. We're not going to take the time to read back through verses 1 through 19 tonight. I encourage you to always encourage you. Don't take my word for anything. Always go back to the word of God. Make sure what I'm saying is right. But you're going to see as you read through that prayer again that he's praying for Israel. He's praying for the land. He prays. We just read it for the holy mountain. He's talking about a geographical place on the map, on the planet. And he's talking for a group of people who, again, at that time, were not living in fellowship with their God, but were living in rebellion. He's praying about their restoration. He's praying about their forgiveness. And notice it's because, Gabriel says, it's because you were greatly beloved that God chose through Gabriel to give him skill and understanding concerning the ultimate hope that Daniel needed to have, not just for himself, but for Israel, for the land, for what he's praying about, for what he's praying for. To deny that this prophecy is about the literal nation of Israel, to deny that this prophecy is about the literal land of Israel, is to deny that God gave him the skill and understanding that the text says that God gave him. And there are a lot of people who want to come in here and they want to say, well, this was really about the church. I mean, this was really about, I mean, Israel's really the church and this is really, no, no, no. The church isn't on anybody's radar but God's at this point. Even the angels don't know about the church yet. It had not been revealed. The apostle Paul is the, is the, is the apostle prophet to whom is given the revelation of the church. Jesus is the one who announced it, but he didn't announce it until he was walking on the earth with his disciples. Hey guys, by the way, I'm going to build my ecclesia. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And they had to be scratching their head going, the ecclesia, the called out assembly, he's got a called out assembly. Called out of what? Called out of where? Who's in it? And it's not until you walk into and begin to go through the book of Acts that you see that the that the called out assembly is not predominantly the nation of Israel or believing Jews. It is, yes, some believing Jews. Yes, those who are spiritually, truly Israel are part of the ecclesia because the ecclesia is not about Jew or Gentile, male or female. It's about, are you in Christ? Do you know Christ? Or do you need Christ? See, you're either, you're either in Christ or in need of Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're in the called out assembly. And Paul says this was a great mystery. This was hinted at in the Old Testament. There were hints. There were prophecies about the Gentiles and Isaiah, Jesus, the Messiah being a light to the Gentiles. But all of that was a mystery until Pentecost, until the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to fill. And then, even then, until the Ethiopian eunuch was... A belie- became a believer in, in Yeshua until he was baptized, until the Apostle Paul began to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what the Damascus Road experience, part of it was all about. Was, was God knocking him on his keister and saying, Paul, uh, you don't, you're not a believer in me yet, but you're going to be, and you're going to take my message to the Gentiles. You're going to tell the Gentiles about me you're going to be the apostle to the gentiles well we got a lot to cover here in daniel so let's get back to the book of daniel this prophecy deals specifically and exclusively with god's plan for israel and the city of jerusalem that is what gabriel says it's about this is an answer to your prayer what is he praying about israel jerusalem the nation the city the land this prophecy notice also came to Daniel about the time of the evening oblation or sacrifice. Now again, we're not going to take the time tonight to read uh, back in the Law of Moses, Exodus chapter 29, but what you will see in Exodus 29, and again, don't take my word for it, if I can get you to go home and read your Bibles, I have accomplished uh, one of my goals. Uh, But in Exodus, in the Law of Moses, the people were commanded to offer two sacrifices a day. There needed to be an, a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And they were to take place at the opening of the tent of meeting, which is where God would speak through Moses 
to the people. It's where God would encounter His people. And there was to be two sacrifices reflective, foreshadowing the two advents of the Messiah. He would come once. He would come twice. And both times He would come and meet with His people and speak with His people. And the first time He came, they rejected Him. The second time He comes, they're going to have another choice. Sadly, many again will reject Him, but many will not. And you read through the book of Revelation, and you see what's going to happen after the harpazo of the church, after the removal of the church. There is going to be great revival. There's going to be many, many Jewish people who read their Bible and they see what happens. And remember, Malachi, the Old Covenant ends in Malachi chapter 4 with the promise that Elijah the prophet is going to return and he will turn the hearts of the people back to God. There's going to be an incredible revival after we're gone of Jewish people coming to Christ. But every Jewish person, just like every Gentile, is going to have to make a choice. It's interesting in 1 Kings chapter 18, we have the, the, the record of Mount Carmel, the battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And we are specifically told that it was at the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah made his sacrifice. It was at the time of the evening sacrifice when Elijah said to the people, why do you halt so long between two opinions? If God is God, serve Him. If Baal's God, serve Him. Right? And then finally at the time of the evening, that's what, he, that's what he told the people. Then he let the prophets of Baal go. They went all day. Then at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah goes, okay guys, here's your chance. Here's your choice. And he calls down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And then he says, take those prophets of Baal and let's put them to death so that they don't have the opportunity to deceive anyone anymore. At the time of the end, as we're going to see in this prophecy, people are going to have to make a choice. You want to serve God or you want to serve Baal? You want to serve Christ or the Antichrist? You're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to line up with the prophets of Baal or you're going to have to line up with Elijah. And so it's at the time of the evening. Daniel says, listen, it was right about the time of the evening sacrifice that this answer to my prayer came to me. Prophecies given and interpreted by the angel. The prophecies given in response to a very specific prayer. And here is where it starts to get really exciting. The prophecy has an ultimate fulfillment. When will this prophecy be fulfilled? We are given very, very precise details concerning when and how this prophecy will be fulfilled. Look with me at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon, now notice, thy people and upon thy holy city, that's Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, God means what He says or He doesn't. When you look at the nation of Israel today, when you look at the city of Jerusalem today, do you see any of this is true? Any of it? Well, it was fulfilled by the church back in the first century. This is not about the church. It's about the nation of Israel. It's about the city of Jerusalem. He's very specifically told us this. Let, let's walk through these, th these descriptions very quickly together. Six things have to be accomplished before this prophecy is completely fulfilled. Number one, Israel has to completely have forsaken, as a nation, has to have forsaken the transgression. The transgression. What is the transgression? Well, the context goes on to talk about the death of Messiah. So some would say that this, the transgression is idolatry, idolatry in general, but the idolatry was gone by the time that, for the most part, there was still, 
Israelites who were in idolatry, of course. But nationally, idolatry was not a problem for the nation of Israel. Why did God judge Israel? Because of their rejection of Messiah. See, there's a day coming when Israel, as a nation, will forsake their rejection of Messiah. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 talks about it when the, at the second coming. They, first of all, he ain't coming back to Israel until they call upon him as their king and as their Messiah and as their savior. And when Zechariah says when they look at him, when the people in Israel who are surrounded by the armies of Antichrist and the, and the true believers who are going to be the only ones who are left alive by the end of the tribulation, as far as the Jews are concerned anyways. They're going to look at him, and they're going to say, we're going to be up there with him, by the way, coming back with him, Revelation 19. But when they look up him whom they have pierced, they will weep because they will recognize what their ancestors did. They'll recognize their own guilt before they came to know Messiah, and they will call upon him, and there will be a national end to the transgression, to the rejection of Messiah. Number two, Israel will be then a pure nation in obedience to Messiah. Not only will the transgression be ended, they will no longer reject Messiah, but there will be an end of sins. Israel will be pure. Israel will be a pure nation. Ezekiel 36 promises this when God says to the nation of Israel that he's going to give them a new heart. He's going to take out the heart of stone. He's going to put in a heart of flesh. He's going to create in them a new heart. By the way, that promise is made specifically to the nation of Israel, but it applies to us as well because Paul says now in Christ, we're a new creation. We're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Number three, Israel's iniquity has been reconciled. This is the literal and final fulfillment of the Jewish feast day called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Israel's sins as a nation will be gone. And so this rebellious people that you read about from the beginning to the end of the book will no longer be a sinful nation. Will no longer be a rebellious people. Why? Because they're so wonderful? No, Romans 9, 10, and 11 says it's because God's so wonderful. It's because God keeps His promises. Even when we don't keep our promises to Him, He keeps His promises to us. And God will keep His promises that He made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that He made to David about the seed of David who will sit forever on His throne in His city. Israel's iniquity will be reconciled. Number four, Israel's righteousness will be established forever. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6 makes that promise. Number five, all of the prophecies concerning Israel's purification, concerning Israel's establishment will have been fulfilled. When will the prophecies be ended? Only concerning Israel. Concerning Israel. Only when this prophecy is fulfilled only at the second coming only when the kingdom is established forever and then there will be no more need for God's promises for God to make promises to Israel because he'll, he will have kept them all he will have kept them all all of the promises Amos 3 7 in the context of prophecies about Israel in the context of Israel Amos says, does God do anything without telling the prophets? Does God do anything major? Does God do anything of significance concerning Israel without telling the prophets? So only when this occurs will all the promises and prophecies be fulfilled. Number six, the most holy has been anointed in Jerusalem. The anointing of the most holy. Now, scholars are, are, are a little bit divided on this. Some think that this is the uh, king of kings sitting on his throne. But I tend to think that this is the king of kings doing the anointing of the holy temple and the holy place. Again, whichever position you take, it, it comes out the same way. It comes to the same thing. Is that Jesus Christ, king of kings, Lord of lords, will purify his temple and there will be perfect worship of the king of kings on earth in Jerusalem 
in that day. Until that happens, friends, I don't care who tells you this is fulfilled in the first century. I don't care who tells you that, that this is all symbolic of the church. This is not dreams and visions. This is not about Gentiles. This is about what Daniel was praying for. And I've told you many times, it's a lot easier. It takes a lot less faith to say that God has kept all of the promises and all the prophecies that have already been fulfilled than it does to say, these prophecies, these promises haven't been fulfilled yet, but I will bet my life that God will fulfill them. I'll bet my life. That takes faith. That's what, that's what uh, Thomas was told, remember? Unless I'm able to put my hands in the nail piercings, I won't believe that he rose again. Jesus said, here you go. Here you go. Put your hands in. Now, fortunately for him, he got on his face and he said, my Lord and my God. He didn't need to actually put his hands in when he saw Jesus face to face. But Jesus said to him, blessed are those who will believe without having to even see me. So there is a blessing coming for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ without having seen him. And this is described in detail. This temple worship described in detail, Ezekiel 40 through 48. You can read about it in Zechariah chapter 6, you can, you can see some snippets of that in Revelation 19 and 20. We already talked uh, earlier in this book about the thrones being established because the church, the, the high priest the, uh, himself, Jesus Christ, is going to administer through his priesthood, which is us. And so we are going to rule and reign with Messiah. And so the thrones will be set up for us, which is uh, based all on his amazing grace, not on what we, anything that we deserve. So again, the 70 weeks has not been completed until all of these promises have been literally fulfilled. Now, let's start to get into the math. I'm not going to get too deep into math tonight. You can, blow, uh, you can blow some brain cells, right? You can get overheated and, and some circuits can start popping uh, you, when you get into some of this math, all right? I'm not going to do that to you tonight. Some of you would be really into that. Some of you would uh, be looking for, did, did I put my pillow under the, under the pew uh, that I can pull it out right now? We're not going to get into too heavy on the math. We'll touch on it a little bit, just, just what we need to. But here's what I want to show you. The prophecy will unfold literally as promised in 70, the King James says weeks. The Hebrew word literally means sevens, sevens. Usually when you go to the grocery store, you buy eggs by the dozen. Now, sometimes I get two dozen or, or I get uh, a dozen and a half or whatever, right? But you understand the word dozen means 12. The Hebrew word here is a word that means sevens, just like our word dozen. It is seven based on the context. Seven what? Well, he doesn't tell us seven what yet. But it doesn't take too long to find out that it's not seven days, seven months, seven hours. It's seven years, seven, uh, a period of, of time, seven years groupings. So this prophecy will in, uh, uh, unfold in 70 divisions of seven years. Seven years is one seven, one week. OK, week is easy for us because we have a seven-day week. And so that's why it was translated as week. We don't have a, uh, an English word like dozen for seven. We only have it for, we have it for 12. We don't have it for seven. I have it for some other things as well, you know, like trio, duo, whatever. We have it for some other numbers. I don't know of any for seven. Maybe you know. Here's the point. 70 weeks we know now equals 490 years. Now, this prophecy is significant because it's tied to the context of Daniel's prayer if you were to go back into Leviticus chapter 25 again that's that's your homework I'm not going to take you there tonight for sake of time but Leviticus chapter 25 the law of Moses God commanded that Israel sabbath the land let the land rest every seventh year don't till the land don't farm the land well how are we going to eat I'll take care of you I'll take care of you. Well, we got to work. The, I mean, we got to work the land. We got to we got to harvest the land. We got to let the land rest. I'll take care of you. Seven. The seventh year, every seventh year. Here's the thing. 
For 490 years, they had failed to obey this command. Israel never obeyed this. And so after 490 years, God said, um, I'm going to send you into captivity for 70 years. Why 70? One for every failed Sabbath year. Every time you skipped, uh, I'm keeping count. I'm, I'm, I don't lose count, God says. You're going to pay me back. I'll make the land rest. By the way, I've, I've heard it said before, uh, and I need, to, I need to remind myself of this, uh, we don't Sabbath very well. Now, we're not, under, uh, command, we're not under the law of Moses. We're not under the command to uh, observe the Sabbath day the way that Israel was commanded to do it. Okay? By the way, that's Saturday, not Sunday. This is the first day of the week. This is the Lord's Day. We worship on Sunday now because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose on Sunday, fulfillment of the feast day. And so now we worship together on Sundays, not on Sabbath. But you need the Sabbath. You need to find some time to rest. If you don't, God will rest you. God will rest you. And it's not going to be fun when, you, when he does. You don't, want God to see, you don't want God to put you in time out. Okay? <laughs> so, the Babylonian captivity... Well, by the way, that's not my guess. That's not my interpretation. That's not my opinion. That's revealed to us word for word. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 and 21. God says, your captivity is because you, forsa- you forsook the Sabbath years. Now, here's the, here's the other thing I want to show you tonight. I want you to notice that these 77s are divided up into three groups. They're not even groups. They're not equal groups. Not even close. But they're divided up into three groups. Da- uh, Daniel is told by Gabriel how the first seven, the first set will start. He's told how the second set will end. He's told that there will be an interval between the second and the final. And then he's told what will happen not only in the final, but halfway through the final. Seven years of human history prior to the second coming. Now, remember, this isn't about the church. Church isn't here. Church is not involved yet. Church is not even revealed yet. That's the Apostle Paul. I'm going to show you guys a mystery that's been hidden from the beginning of the ages, but has been revealed to you. Don't you realize the blessing that God has placed on you, not only to know about the mystery, but to be the mystery. It's just an amazing, amazing gift of God's grace. Only possible because Messiah has come. Messiah has fulfilled the covenant of Moses he's fulfilled the old covenant he's established a new covenant it wasn't possible before that everything changed when Jesus died on the cross everything changed again when Jesus rose again everything changed again when the Holy Spirit came in a way that he had never come before on the day of Pentecost everything changed so let's look first of all at the first group of sevens listen listen to the the prophecy and then I'll just share you share with you a few things before we close tonight Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, again, upon thy holy city, again, to finish the transgression, etc., etc. Verse 25, know therefore and understand. Here's what you need to understand, Daniel. Here's what you need to understand, church. That from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks. That's seven times seven. And three score in two weeks, the street shall be built again, the wall, even in troublesome times. And after three score and two weeks, plus the first seven, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. By the way, how are you going to know for sure that Messiah was the one who was cut off? Oh, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to knock down the temple and I'm, not going to, I'm going to knock down the city. I'm going to use a wicked people to do it. But I will take away your temple worship because you won't need it anymore. I will take away your city because of your re- rejection of Messiah. And you will know that Messiah has been here and you rejected him as a people. And if you still refuse, you will be blinded. You will be blinded because of your own calloused and hardened heart. The people of the prince shall come and shall destroy the city of the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with the flood. So the end of this time uh, of, of this destruction shall be with the flood and unto the end of the war. 
the war that destroys the city, desolations are determined. Now let's stop there. Let's just cover the first two sevens. Number one, seven sevens. The first cycle begins with a royal decree to restore and to build Jerusalem. Scholars debate. This is, there's been a couple royal decrees. Scholars debate which one is the one that God is talking about. Probably the one. I'm not an expert on this by any, by any means. And even the experts disagree. So even if I was an expert, which I'm not, it, I, that's not the point. The point is that there would be a decree it is probably the one recorded in Scripture for us. Ezra chapter 7, Nehemiah chapter 2, in 444 B.C. When the decree was actually made and then fulfilled. There was a couple before that. There was one after that to finish the job. But it's probably this one. Again, scholars disagree. Here's the second group, 62 sevens. 62 seconds. The second cycle begins. And the second cycle, we're told when it will end. It will end with the presentation of Messiah the Prince to the city of Jerusalem. And it will be followed by the cutting off, the sacrificial death of Messiah. He'll be cut off, but not for himself. Not because, he's, not because he is a sinner. Not because of his own sin will he be cut off. He'll be wounded for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace will be upon him. By his stripes, though, we will be healed. We're healed by his stripes. So, here's the precision. This prophecy tells the nation of Israel hundreds of years in advance, hundreds and hundreds of years in advance, that there's a time coming when there will be a decree to rebuild the city. It will be rebuilt. Chill out. I'm going to rebuild my city, I'm going to re rebuild my temple. I'm going to use you to do it. You're going to have some work to do. He's going to put in a lot of work in 52-day period, by the way, and he doesn't tell them that there, but that's what we find out in, in the book of Nehemiah. But 483 years later, you better be ready because Messiah is coming riding into the city. By the way, Zechariah tells us how he will ride into the city, how he will present himself on the back of a donkey. Just so you don't miss it, Israel. I'm going to give you the very date. I'm going to tell you how he's going to present himself as Messiah. All in prophecy. All written hundreds of years before Jesus got on that donkey. And he rode into the city. And in so doing, he presented himself as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He presented himself as the King of the nation of Israel. He presented himself as Messiah the Prince. Now, I told you that your head can short circuit because... Here, let me just, uh, as just a little aside, again, I'm not going to parse the math for you tonight. Everybody has a bias, okay? We all have biases. And we have a debate on one end, when is the decree to rebuild the city? Which decree is the one where the prophecy starts? We have a debate on the other end that is very, very passionate and very, very much about tradition. When did Jesus die? Did he die in AD 33? Did he die in AD 32? Did he die in AD 30? Did he die in AD 31? Say, what does it matter? Well, it matters for a couple of reasons. Again, we can, we can short circuit if we get too much. The Jews actually observed two different Passover dates. There were the faithful Jews, or the, I should say, they were faithful to the commandment. They, most of them still rejected Messiah. They weren't faithful to God, but they were faithful to the law, and they observed it when the law said. But the nation as a whole, they went with when, when Rome said that they could do it, or, or according to the Babylonian calendar. So they had two calendars, and they had two Passover dates. So which Passover did Jesus observe? I'm not going to get into that debate tonight. By the way, the Lord's Supper was before Passover. Passover lamb hadn't been sacrificed yet. He was the Passover. He was the Passover. So when did he come? When did he die? Did he die on Friday or did he die on Thursday? Or some people even believe Wednesday. Wednesday's right out the door, by the way, but that's a whole other subject. 
People have very passionate. Listen, if you if you are married to Jesus died on Friday, then you have to believe AD 33. Or there's, I think, one other year in there that. But that's tradition says AD 33 on a Friday. But if the date doesn't line up, then I got to switch calendars because do we use the Jewish calendar? Do we use the Roman calendar? Because the Jewish calendar is only 360 days. This gets really, really complicated really, really fast. I'm not going to get into it. Let me just give you, though, one scholar. I'm just going to give you one. I'm not saying he's right, but I've used Chuck Missler before, so let me share this with you. The, in the Unexpected King, you can find this on his, on, uh, his he's, in, he's in heaven now, but his ministry, Koinonia House, uh, you can find this article on there if you want to see it yourself. Koinonia House, March 1st, 2008. It's called The Unexpected King Palm Sunday Surprise. And here's what Chuck calculated. He calculated 483 Jewish years. At, that's 360 days a year, okay? As 173,880 days. And he began that calculation on March 14th, 445 B.C. until April 6th, A.D. 32. And he indicated this is the exact day Jesus fulfilled Zechariah 9.9, presented himself as king by riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. So again, scholars debate the dates. I'm not here, I'm not here about the dates. I'm here about the fact that God, listen, whichever year it was, whichever count, did, even if your calendar is wrong, God's calendar is never wrong. But even if you got a wrong calendar and you're off by a year, are you telling me that you have God's prophecies. You're told where Messiah would be born, how, how he would be born. You're told when he would ride into the city. You're told that he would be cut off for himself. And you're told, by the way, 40 years later, almost 40 years later, the city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed exactly as Jesus said and exactly as God's word had prophesied hundreds of years in advance. People still rejected Messiah. People still rejected. It's not because God didn't, enable them to know Romans 1 says God, they're without excuse because there's things that God has revealed and they reject it that's why men are without excuse notice also as we close tonight there's an interval the interval is described after the war that destroys the city by the people of the prince who's to come there's a war leads to the temple's destruction and notice Gabriel says after that there's going to be times of desolation Desolation leading up to what? The final seven. The final seven. How long is the desolation? Well, God doesn't tell us, but so far it's been almost 2,000 years. I'd say we're getting pretty close to the end. Why else do I think that? Just because it's been 2,000 years? No, because um, over in Canaan, there's a nation where there wasn't a nation for almost 2,000 years. There's a nation of Israel. They came back into the land exactly how God said they would, in unbelief. It's exactly as God said they would. He tells that, Isaiah 66, in a day, in a day, I will rebuild my nation. I'll reestablish my nation. In a day. Have you seen such a thing? Oh, and by the way, Isaiah 66 says, you know what's going to happen after the birth? It's not going to be like a normal birth. Normally, you have the birth pains, and then you have the baby. Isaiah 66, go read it yourself, says, I'm going to give you the baby, then you're going to get the birth pangs. What are the birth pangs leading up to? Read this next verse. And he, the prince who is coming from the people who destroyed the temple. What people destroyed the temple in AD 70? The Roman Empire. The people who destroyed the temple, there's a prince coming from up among those people. And he, that prince, is going to confirm the covenant with many for one week. The final seven. The final seven years. The final seven years, friend, do not start at the rapture of the church. The church is not even in this prophecy. The church, has not, the church is not on anybody's radar but God's at this point. Only it's a mystery. There's going to be an interval after the rapture before the Antichrist signs the peace treaty. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll get, we'll get back into that. We talked about that uh, almost two years ago now. We'll talk about that again uh, in, in the near future, I, I, I believe, Lord willing. 
But the final seven will begin when the prince that shall come shall confirm the covenant for the final seven. But in the middle of that seven, three and a half years in, 42 months in, he will break the covenant by ending the temple sacrifices, which means that he's going to have to rebuild the temple. By the way, they're already got the stuff for the temple already getting to, they're already gathering it together. They're ready to go. As soon as they're given permission to rebuild the temple, there are, there are people in Israel that are ready to go. They've already got the instruments uh, made. They've already got them ready to go. It's going to happen fast. It's going to happen fast. Not going to be like a group of, of uh, nothing against our construction workers, okay? But it's not going to be like a group of people that are, that are trying to uh, string out their uh, uh, construction so they can get paid for longer, right? This is going to be a group of highly motivated people. They're going to get this thing up fast. He'll break the covenant. He'll unleash the overspreading of abominations that will make the rebuilt temple desolate until the completion of the final seven years. And then, as we'll see, hope comes. Because what happens at the end of that seven years? What happens three and a half years after the Antichrist betrays Israel? Look back, and we'll close with this. The transgression will be finished. Verse 24. There will be an end of national sins of Israel. Reconciliation for iniquity will have been made. There will be everlasting righteousness at the end of those seven years. No more need for prophecy concerning Israel. It will all be fulfilled. And the Most Holy will be there to do it. And He'll anoint that temple. And that abomination of desolation, it's it going to be gone. It'll be, it'll, be as, it'll be as far gone as the Antichrist will be in burning forever and ever in the lake of fire. And Jesus Christ will reign. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for the promise of your word. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, for the, for the prophecies that you've given us to secure us, God, to secure our hope, to give us encouragement when, God, we see a world in chaos, when we see wars and rumors of wars. God, you told us yourself from your very lips, don't be dismayed, the end is not yet. All these things are the birth pangs. God, we believe we're seeing the beginning of the birth pangs now. We know that Jesus is at the door. So God, may our hearts be prepared for the any moment return of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful.